Welcome to the Jesus Said Love podcast. This is a space where we talk about what it means to awaken hope and empower change. Listen, for over a decade, Em and I have been fostering relationships with men and women who've been impacted by the commercial sex industry. And it's through those relationships that Jesus Said Love was born. We figured it was time to talk about what this ministry has taught us and is still teaching us along the way. I promise it's going to be a place of conversation and story. And we hope you learn something new. Maybe you see something in a new way. Fun fact, you're going to hear music because Brett and I are musicians. Yep. We can't just talk. Nope. we got to sing and play too. We do. Here's the deal, guys. Our hope is that as you hear these stories, that you'll tap into your own story and that you'll be encouraged to live and love well like Jesus. Hi, Brett. Well, hello there, Emily. We're getting some good feedback on these podcasts, and I'm super, super excited to talk today. How are you feeling right now? I'm, you know, I'm feeling really good because I just came from a breakfast. I've been meeting with a friend of mine, and we've been talking about this book and talking about this priest called Richard Rohr, and it is, he is wrecking us. Mm. And so it's fun watching my friend ask questions. And I'm asking questions, and we both don't know all the answers, which is great. You know, the first time mm-hmm. in my life, I don't know answers. So um, I don't know. if I'm ready to go. <laughs> I love that. Well, that was a very rich breakfast. Yeah, a very quick, because I knew we had to get here, because I didn't want to leave this dear soul of a guest waiting. No, I'm so excited. Well... Joining us on our podcast today is our only repeating guest. So we have the first repeating guest oh, on our look podcast. look at that. That's right. Isn't that cool? Well, that must mean she's really pretty important to us and her work in the world too. So I am super excited to welcome my friend, my guide, my coach, Laurie Proctor to Yay, the show. My sister from another mister. <laughs> That's right. Hi, Emily. Hi, Brett. I am thrilled to be here with you guys today. It's so good to see you. Laurie is um, a really an expert in in story and in trauma and a certified Enneagram coach. I met her three years ago at um, an Allender Center um, deep dive into To Be Told workshop, and, and it was one of the most transformative weekends I've ever had in my life. Um, And what we're bringing Laurie on the podcast to talk with us today as an expert is verbal abuse. And I know this is a subject that many of our listeners are going to say, I I just don't know if I want to do this. This just might be too heavy to listen to. I think in all of these podcasts, you are going to hear some really heavy truth, but you're also going to find hope. And my hope is that as Laurie gives us some language and connection around, um, verbal abuse and the power of words and language, you're going to see your story differently and you're going to have some real hope for how you move forward. So Laurie, welcome back and tell us um, a little bit about who you are and what you're doing right now in the world. Sure. Thank you. And thank you for having me back. I feel like who, like Steve Martin, like on Saturday Night Live, like he was the host that like I've done this like 12 times now. I know. Yes. We'll we'll send you the blazer. (laughs) Can I get the blazer? Yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah. So I appreciate being back. Thank you for inviting me. 
So I am first first and foremost a mom and a wife. I have two teenage kids, Emma and Jet, who are remote learning right now. So I am praying that my Wi-Fi doesn't just crash <laughs> because that's happened a couple times now that we're all here learning remotely. Um, and then I am a wife to Dave. We've been married almost 19 years, and we live outside of Chicago. And I am a, what I would call a, a story coach or a holistic mind, body, spirit coach. And I work in the realm of trauma and abuse and really helping people turn their pain into purpose. Mm. So often we have all this unprocessed pain that literally guides us and informs us. And when we're unaware of it, we just are in our patterns and we're, we don't know until we know. But when we start waking up to the way that we have been harmed, to our heartache, to our story, we can start to tend to it in mm -hmm. a way that we can, um, and I think we'll probably be talking about breaking some curses and vows and agreements that we've made that kind of keep us in bondage and keep us living a life that is not one of abundance and freedom, but one of bondage and captivity. I, and love, so that you, I love that you use that word, waking up. Because I, I, I so resonate with that. It's this, you know, this process where we're kind of, our eyes are starting to open and we're still kind of laying in the bed and, and then we sit up and we're rubbing our eyes and scratching our head and then we kind of put our feet on the floor. I love that imagery because, yeah, I would agree that it is, we are waking up to these things. I know in my own life I have been, so I get it. Yeah, it sounds like Richard Rohr is waking you up a little bit. That heretic <laughs> friar... <laughs> Tuck guy. <laughs> I know. He's pretty amazing. There is something that you said regarding turning our pain into purpose and really working with our stories. And words and language have so much power in our stories. And I think that the reason why I want to talk about verbal abuse is because it's one of those areas of abuse, kind of like emotional abuse, where it's really hard to quantify. You know, when you've got a physical abuse, when you have a scar, when you have a wound, a very physical external presence, there's these external wounds that need tending to. And so you go get care and somebody from the outside can look and go, wow, you've been hurt. That must've hurt. How did that make you feel? How are you doing? Let me get you some water. Let me get you some care. And you've, you've got people on the external of you who can see your pain, but with verbal abuse, it is, it is coming from the external but it is really, really embodied internally. And so that's why I want to have you on is talk to us about, first of all, how do we quantify verbal abuse? Like, what is it? How can we define what is verbal abuse? So the way I would define it, um, verbal abuse is an act of communication, whether overt or covert communication intended to harm the self-concept of another person. Okay, so I want to stop there. Intended to harm the self-concept of another person. What if there are words, abusive words spoken to you, but the offender says, that's not my intent to harm? Mm -hmm. Is it still verbal abuse? Absolutely. It's not so much the intent of the person saying or not saying the words, it's how they're received. It's how they're perceived in the person's emotional body mm -hmm. and emotional landscape. So I use the word intentional 
but you know, someone could be asleep to it, like a parent mm-hmm. who's asleep to their own pain that has not woken up from their own ways that they've been harmed. So it could be unintentional, but it's still, there is an intention to cause the person that they're verbally abusing to change their behavior. Okay. Yes. Talk through that. So when maybe somebody comes at you, let's say a parent comes at a child with saying something that's very maybe aggressive, or it doesn't have to even be aggressive. It can just be subtle, Um, but it's hurtful. It's harming and it's desiring to change or get a kid to straighten up, fall in line. What is, what's the context of of that? What does that look like sometimes? So I want to go back to overt versus covert because I really want to get the distinction there because it could look so many different ways, but overtly is literal, literal words. Um, And that could be um, threats. It could be name calling. It could be mocking and humiliation. Mm -hmm. It's using language in a way to control, manipulate, or demean another person. Would this be in an overt situation? Would it be something like minimization? Like let's say a child is crying? Absolutely. And That's then, why it's the, the possibilities of this type of, of overt verbal abuse are absolutely endless. Mm. I started to try to list them all in preparation for this podcast. And I, I, it, I just kept writing and writing and writing. There's so many ways. What are some of the top ways you listed? Um, well, name calling, mm. right? You're so stupid. Don't be an idiot. Um, don't be a sissy. Okay, right. can I stop you right there, real quick? <laughs> we have to, we're gonna I, stop. I mean, the whole time. I need. I'm gonna have to work through this. I think so. Don't be an idiot. Um, if you asked our three kids, what is your family <laughs> motto? Um, they would all in sync say, "Don't be an idiot," because we have taught our children. Number one, don't be an idiot when you when you leave the. Have I totally abused my children by making that? I a family think that motto? was your motto. What What's the first part of the motto? What's the first part? If they say, if we say, who are you? Oh, you're the light of the world. Yeah. There you and go. The, and then we taught them that. Then, and then we follow up with don't be an idiot. You, <laughs> you added, I am, I'm not going to take ownership for don't be an idiot, but yes, you, you do. Yeah. You're like, come on, don't be an idiot. You're, you're not an idiot. Basically you're the light of the world. So which leads, which leads me to my question though, you know, in your list <laughs> could, could some, could some words be abusive to some people and some not? Absolutely. Like we have to bring temperament into this. If we're talking about childhood verbal abuse, there's our, our children just have different temperaments. Mm-hmm. So one child, it could roll off their back like a duck and another child, it could scar them for life. Mm. And you will be paying for their therapy for years and years and years. (laughs) And it could be the same words. It's really how they're perceived, how they're taken in. And we will, I I hopefully will start talking about agreements and vows and how we do consciously and subconsciously agree with some of the verbal assaults against our goodness, against our glory. And so some children will not agree with it. They're like, oh, they're just having a bad day. They'll be able to roll with it where other children, not so much. They have a very tender, sensitive, um, empathic heart. So they're Mm -hmm. going to take it in more Mm -hmm. than another child might. 
So the overweights are name calling, minimization, threats, um, some maybe even like hyper sarcasm could be perceived as bullying or threatening to some children. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Sarcasm is definitely a form of verbal abuse. Mm-hmm. And we think, oh, it's lighthearted, but to that sensitive child who may have their parents on a pedestal, right? Parents know all, they, they, they're the end all. We do see our parents when we're little as a godlike figure. Mm. And they're supposed to love us and nurture us. So even just a flippant comment can be very harmful to a child. I think sometimes when I think about sarcasm as well, that there's a difference between sarcasm when it's related to dry humor or situational. um, And it's very different when it's personal. It's very different when the sarcasm is directed at you for the way you're behaving or not behaving or, oh, aren't you Miss Perfect or, oh, aren't you? Um, That would be sarcasm directed personally as a form of of bullying and and getting you um, to demean you, to harm you. Well, yeah, that attacks the good, like you were talking about, that totally attacks someone's goodness when it's, aren't you the greatest thing in the world? Yeah, and, and those, when it's so personal, when sarcasm is personal, it's hard, but it's when you're talking about a situation and you're, you, you know, you're presenting some sort of dry humor about a moment, a collective moment or something that's happening in the world, it doesn't feel as threatening, right? Am I getting that right? You totally are. You're spot on. And I, I just want to take a step back here because something just came to me that your listeners might be listening to this and might be a parent. Mm. or in a relationship with their significant other. And I just want to name, like, we all are doing the best we can, mm. and especially as parents. And so even though this, this material might be hard to hear, like, just notice your body and notice what's coming up for you. Is there shame? Is there, like, accusation? Like, oh, my gosh, I totally messed up my kids. <laughs> because there is something called repair. Yes. But- we can repair that. I mean, my kids know now that, I mean, I do it all the time. I, you know, and we haven't even gotten to the covert abuse, but even the look you give your children sometimes, you know, the look, the look, the look, don't you dare step out of line or say something. No words are even needed. And, and my kids now come to me and say, Hey, when you looked at me that way, or when you sighed, Mm. it hurt my feelings. And I'm telling you that Enneagram 8 in me is just like, oh, really? <laughs> but I have learned that I need to say, I'm so sorry that that hurt you. And so, so we are going to hurt one another. We're going to verbally abuse our children. And the repair piece is really, I just want to offer that as some hope mm. as we dive into this topic, because we get to repair. We get to say, I'm so sorry that hurt you. Wow. And we're going to talk more about maybe how we do that, but talk to us about the covert. Um, What can we name there? What is covert verbal abuse? So covert verbal abuse would be anything that's not overtly spoken. So um, silent treatment, stonewalling, Mm -hmm. the look that I mentioned, right? Just even like the eyebrow raise can be perceived as, control and don't step out of line. Mm. Man, so I have all to... the ways 
that, yeah, that's not using language. I have to confess, I am a professional <laughs> stonewaller. <laughs> I mean, expert. Oh, well, you know, you're naming it. So that is amazing. I'm just being honest here, guys. <laughs> you got to own your shit if you're going to get better. That's right. It's the beginning of change. It is. It is. And um, Brett and I were both communication majors, which is really ironic in this because, um, you know, it just proves to be that even if you're like, you have a degree in something, it doesn't mean you're great at it. <laughs> you know, it just, it just means, Hey, I learned a lot about it, but it's knowledge. We have a lot of knowledge, but applied knowledge is, is wisdom. And, um, you know, we learn that 80% of communication is nonverbal. That's right. It is what we what we perceive, what we do with our look, with our face, with our, I mean, yeah, our arms, our body posture, body language, all of it, our eyes, like you said. I know, but I never even thought about that as being abuse, you know? Right. Like, um, I honestly never thought stonewalling was being, because for me, stonewalling is protection. It's you can't get me. I'm kind of mad right now, and... I'm going to protect myself when in actually that's being harmful towards the other person because I'm not giving of myself. I'm not giving them anything. And so when you don't give them anything, then they fill in the blanks and probably typically we all go to the negative side versus the positive side. Yep. We are, we are wired for negative bias. Mm. Mm. And so I hear the self-protection and I do that too. And yet, especially with our children, we are called to delight in them. Even when when we're hurting, Hmm. we are called to not withhold that engagement and that delight. So when we stonewall to protect ourselves, we're actually withholding something that they desperately need. It goes back to what we talked about a couple of episodes ago with the baby expert or the the where the mom withholds the uh, response to mm -hmm. the baby and the baby can see that and then starts to react and gets frustrated. And then it's like, why aren't you responding to me? It's a it's, form of neglect. That's right. We are wired for connection. Yeah. And and for babies, it's life or death. Mm. They need their their caregivers' face and engagement. And so mm. that still face experiment shows how anxious and distraught a child can become when we withhold that from them. Mm. Yeah, it's a so, hard experiment to watch. Oh. It's it is brutal. so hard. I actually didn't even watch the entire thing the first time that I saw it. It was like I, my whole, like I have chills actually right now just remembering. Um, and it is painful. It's only two it's- minutes long too. It's a long two minutes. <laughs> if you want to see it, you can go to the neglect episode and we have a yeah. link there. But So when we have, let's say that we grew up... Um, not just maybe, maybe our caregivers were not verbally abusive to us, but maybe there was a particular teacher or cousin or coach, um, someone in authority, usually older than us. It could have been a peer. It could have been a relationship that we were drawn to, a boyfriend, an early childhood best friend who had a lot of negative things to say, a lot of ma- manipulation happening there. Um, what if we have e- experienced at an early age 
verbal abuse, talk to our listeners about what that's doing in the brain and in the body. Right. So you bring up such a a beautiful uh, topic here. Not beautiful, but necessary. Mm. Because when we have been wired by our primary caregivers through manipulation, control, um, with verbal assault, or even withholding, it wires us um, for familiarity. Okay. So what wires together fires together. And that just means, and this is a common scientific neurobiology term. So when we have um, early on, when we have been verbally, overtly or covertly abused, it wires our brain to, to connect with that. And so as we go through the world then, and we find people that are verbally abusive, a teacher, a coach, it, it, it just strengthens the wiring. Mm. It just confirms it even more. And now this child comes to see themselves, their self-concept just agrees with it and begins to say, yes, this is who I am. This is what I deserve. And so it's almost like there's a activation system that, that now searches that out, that looks for it because it feels like home. Mm. It feels so familiar that it's like, oh yeah, this is, this is what I get. This is what I deserve. So I'm in no way meaning that, that they're, they're at fault for finding these people. It's just that that's why um, people get in abusive relationships and they can't get out. They're wired for that relationship. They have been groomed for that relationship their whole life. I think this brings up such an important point because as we've done our own work in studying women who have been exploited through commercial sex or survivors of human trafficking, um, there are so many, the, the bias against our women is that they somehow made bad choices and chose this. And what we've come to understand after over a decade is that there are so many systems that failed them that their context of making good choices was really pretty narrow. Um, what, I I mean, I just, as even I'm talking, I just, I'm getting like that belly rumble, you know, like this is so familiar. Um, and I, I want to say that because I think even some of our listeners might be hearing that might be hearing this and they might be getting those little butterflies in their tummy where it's like, uh, she's hitting on a topic that I think may have happened to me, or I think I'm participating in, in my own relationships and my own family. Maybe I am kind of wired for these unhealthy relationships. Um, so I think I just want to bring to light, just as you said, there it is an activation system. That's you right. go, you go searching. This is a physiological response. It is not about your moral capacity. No, not at all. It's literally wired into your neurobiology. And we have these arousal structures that, so verbal abuse always results in an emotional response mm-hmm. and usually a negative emotional response that then, um, taps into our fight, flight, or freeze system, which is comes from the amygdala. And what happens, it's, the, it's our primary limbic system. It's the reptilian brain 
that now rushes all these hormones and cortisol and adrenaline into our system, that's an arousal structure. It gets us ready to fight, flight, or freeze, or appease. And, and so what happens when we've been verbally abused as children, overtly or covertly, it, we have an arousal structure that just responds to it, right? And, and even though we say fight, flight, or freeze is a survival mechanism, there's actually some energy to it. It gives mm-hmm. you some power and some agency to fight, to run, or to shut down in a way that then you can actually, um, you can manage the pain that's coming your way. So, so do you get addicted to those structures, either fight, flight, or freeze, since there is an energy there? Do you get addicted to that? That's right. It's, it's, it's an addiction. It's kind of like a habit of being yourself. It's just the way our body responds to external stimuli that then becomes a pattern. It just becomes a, it, I wouldn't call it like an addictive pattern, although it can be, mm. but it's like a hit. It's a hit of adrenaline that you have no control over. So mm. let me just say that like our fight, flight, or free system is autonomic. Mm. It's not something we have control over. Now we, there's practices to, to really calm your central nervous system. And that's why mindfulness and um, prayer and solitude and stillness that helps calm your nervous system down. So there's there's things we can do to unwire mm. an arousal structure, um, but we have to first know what it is. We have to know our stories and how those arousal structures have kind of um, groomed us to now seek out more of it. And again, there's no condemnation. It's not a conscious thing. It's just because that is the nature of trauma. It's embodied. So this happens. Um, will you quickly talk about what's, what happens when you said fight, flight, freeze, or appease? Mm-hmm. Now that's really interesting. I don't think I've heard that kind of tag on. Yes, this is a newer one. And sometimes they call it fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. So it's much newer in this category. It's a newer scientific discovery. And the appease is a way to, um, it's, it's in the codependent category mm-hmm. where you're going to say or do or give whatever it takes to that person to kind of lessen, lessen the pain, mm-hmm. lessen the threat. And so a lot of pleasing behaviors. So if you are in a, um, friendship, a relationship and with a caregiver or in a family system where maybe you would look back and you would say, you know, uh, no, I, as a parent, you might look back at your child and say, well, they were just, they always seemed happy. They didn't, they didn't seem like anything was wrong. They didn't really make a fuss. You know, they seemed content as a child is that often, and then as an adult, the child might say, no, I was, I was miserable. I, and it's like, it mystifies the parents. They don't understand what went wrong. Is that because maybe they were operating in that appeasement? Absolutely. Category? Yes. It could also just look like a compliance, like a very compliant child. Mm. It doesn't mean that there's not emotional, um, response going on in that child. It just means they have learned how to cope by pleasing, by doing what's necessary to maintain peace in the family, to maintain their role. 
and it's it's very detrimental. Mm. Very so. Detrimental. So what when verbal abuse um, is is happening? Let's talk about the power of words. What's happening in us emotionally, spiritually? when we're absorbing language, when we're absorbing these words, or we're not getting any feedback. We're not, we're being neglected. Like it's that covert, like I know my parents love me, but I never heard it or whatever the, the covert, you know, would be the silent treatment, the stonewall, they don't engage. Um, what kind of, let's talk about these vows and agreements that, that you talked about happening. What, what do we do with, with verbal abuse then? Right. Well, let, let's um, let's go with the overt because I think it's easier to see as an example. So, and I'll use an example from my own story. So um, my dad was a man of very few words. So there was some, some outright verbal abuse, right? Like, don't be stupid, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. You know, you're, you're mm-hmm. acting blah, blah, blah. But there was this one story in particular that was so life-changing for me in, in, a, in a negative way. And I was about 12 years old and I was so full of gusto and life and hope. And my dad was not well at the time. My parents had separated and he was in his own battle, right? But a 12-year-old little girl does not know any of that. And so I'm so full of joy and hope and he basically said to me with, with lots, I mean, right, so much is nonverbal. So he had like disgust on his face, right? His eyes were squinted and his mouth was, you know, pursed. And he was like, the words almost seethed out of him. And I was like up and I was dancing and I wanted him to look at me. I wanted him to delight in me. Like what a beautiful, a beautiful picture, right? Of a little girl who's coming into her womanhood that still wants her daddy's delight. And he basically said, stop it, sit down and stop being like that. Mm. And he didn't even say what like that was, but my brain filled in all the words, Mm. filled in all the words. And they were words he never said outright. He just said like that. And that story was one of my most defining um, abuse stories. And I had much worse abuse than that, much worse, big T traumas. But that one, because I still had hope for delight. I still had an innocence that my dad would see my beauty and my goodness. And so then to be cursed with sit down, stop being like that. That was like, probably there's probably 50 curses that I then agreed with. So a curse is when a person names you in a way that harms or destroys your beauty, your goodness, your value, um, and your glory. And so that's what a curse is. And so even though he didn't say, you are this, he said, don't be like that. And so do you hear, I mean, even those words um, affected me so profoundly Mm. that even still sometimes like what, as I'm telling this story, I feel a little shaky Mm. and I've done so much work around that story in particular. And I had come to forgive my dad and love my dad before he passed. Mm. So this isn't even about blaming him. This is about how do I return to those curses that I agreed with? So what did 
in that curse um, that someone has named you in a way that mars your goodness because like that was said with such contempt through the seething tongue that you knew that was bad so whatever you were doing to dance for your dad in that moment to you know just like every little girl watch my back handsprings watch my cartwheels, watch my dance routine, listen to my song, whatever we're doing to, to perform, to bring our goodness, um, forth, that was all bad. Right. Okay. So, so you now have, you're bad when you do that. Well, we have to go to the second part. So a curse is kind of the beginning and we get cursed all the time. Yeah. Right. It's just living in this dark world. And and let's not forget there's powers and principalities against us right. and against our very goodness. And sometimes it's it's not sometimes, almost all the time. It is when it is our greatest, most beautiful glory that evil's mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh, I gotta get him there. I gotta get her in this space because that glory is too amazing and stunning. And so I've gotta, I've gotta mar it, I've gotta dim it. I've got to steal it. So in my case, like that was my glory. Like I was full of hope and Mm. desire and I wanted to have impact in my world. I was alive. Mm. I was full of, and Brett, you understand this one, gusto, right? Mm. There's a gusto Mm -hmm. to living that, that like an Enneagram 8 pattern brings into the world. It's just beautiful to witness. And that's where evil is going to come against us. And so the curse happened, right? So my dad cursed me with those words. And the agreement happens, whether consciously or unconsciously, I agreed with the curse and I filled in the blanks. So I joined evil by saying, yeah, like that is disgusting and bad. And that's who I am. I agreed with that. And we don't know that we're agreeing with these things. No. Okay. So how did you agree with it? So by believing it, okay, by believing it was true, that there was something fundamentally flawed with the very essence of who I was, mm. that's how we agree. And when we agree, we're partnering with evil. Mm. We are partnering with evil's ploys. We're saying yes to evil's lies, and we're saying no to God's truth that we are so perfectly and wonderfully and beautifully made in God's, God's fingerprint and his and her essence, mm. God's unbelievable goodness were made in that image. Did you ever and dance so when, around him again? Well, good question, but that's where we come to the vow. Mm. So it's really, if we, if we had like a chart, it would be the cursing comes first, then the agreement to the cursing, and then we make vows. And so the vows are really a declaration. And this usually we do remember, not always, but in in this story that I brought to you, I do remember making a vow. Mm. Um, So the vow is a declaration to protect ourselves from future harm. So vows can look um, so many different ways. But for me, for when I sat down, right, because he told me to sit down. So I agreed and I vowed I will never give him that again. He will never get this part of me again. Mm. And that was specific to my father. Mm. And he did not. He didn't. 
from age 12 to 22, I, I shut him off from my heart. Mm-hmm. I said, he will not have access to it. I will not give it to him. So I did vow against that. I, I made some other vows in that. I also vowed that men are not trustworthy. Mm. That because this man, it was the only man in my life at the time, really. Um, I didn't really have a relationship. My other grandfather had died and my other the other grandfather had moved away. We didn't have uncles, really. Mm. So there was no other male figure, really, um, in my life. So there was something like, okay, this masculine energy that mm. just um, really crushed me. Mm. There, was, there was a vow that, and, and my mom added to it, right? She would, she would make comments about men not being trustworthy. So I vowed, yeah, men are not trustworthy. Right. Because I think it's important to see like, this is one story, but it's also why this one story is so powerful. Um, But these, these stories are often happening simultaneously or within, you know, months of each other and in different contexts. So you may have this story happening, but then there's a moment at school that reinforces this narrative. Like suddenly when we've been cursed and we've made an agreement and then a vow with that curse, it almost is like highlighted everywhere we go. And we just keep like living out that pattern because we're, we just, I, it's the trauma. It's the trauma bonding. It's that wiring now that's just at play. It's just continually happening. And we don't feel, I think the, we don't feel like we have agency, especially as a child. I mean, we just don't feel like we can change anything. That's right. You know? Right. We're powerless. Mm. And, and so even going back to the agreement before we make the vows, there's something when we agree with the lies, we're turning against the goodness of our own heart. Mm. Right. So, so that's why story work is so important. And I, nothing has changed my life or waken me up more than my own story work, because we don't know how we turn against ourselves until we step into the particularity of these stories. And what you're saying also, Emily, is how then it gets reinforced. Mm. Usually there's a, a core story though. And now we're just reenacting it. We're just continually like wiring it together with all these other stories that happen. So I'm cu- I'm curious when I don't y'all probably aren't like this, but I'm an expert minimizer of of things. Like oh, it wasn't that bad, you know? Okay, mm-hmm. they said that's not a big deal. When and you know now I look at it later and go, well, that's kind of a big deal. Like really? So at what point in your life did you realize that story had impacted you so deeply? Like, I'm sure you did at the moment when you were 12. It's like, God, that hurt, that sucked, whatever. And, you you know, you're subconsciously making these things. But at what point did you look back and go, wow, that, that was a moment that marked me? I think for me, Brett, that story, I always knew it marked me. Hmm. But I did what you're saying. I think I minimized. I'm like, yeah, but why? It was no big deal. Like, he didn't touch me. He didn't even, he didn't, I mean... He raised his voice, but it wasn't in a verbal assault. It was in a seething, clenched mouth, you know, whisper, kind of like to sit the F down. Mm-hmm. I, 
I knew it affected me because after that time, I stopped talking to my dad. I, I shut him out. So I knew it was a big story, but because I minimized, I'm like, well, wait, what about the time he did hit me? Like mm -hmm. that one didn't have as big of an effect as this one. Because so I, you'd already hardened? Because is that, or it just, that this is where I'm just so curious about if we have had harms and assaults come against us where we block off and harden ourselves toward individuals, then they may hit us all they want or they may, and we're almost like removed from them in some way. I don't know. Right. And I, I think it's, you know, could be death by a thousand paper cuts, right? Yeah. But for me, this one really was where I made the agreements. And I made the vows. And I think that's an important piece of it. I mean, all abuse is horrendous. Mm. But when there's still hope, when there's still belief that there's some goodness, I think we haven't completely turned against our hearts. But for me, in this case, is when I really, and, and 12 is one of those ages, mm. right? That you're coming into your, your mm. higher mind where you, you're starting to, to think differently and to see yourself as separate and I mean, it happens earlier than that. But for me, it's when I really did agree with all the lies in this one moment. For other people, it could be, you know, 10 different stories. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I have many other stories, mm -hmm. but there's something about this one where there is like a legion of agreements mm. for me. So like back to your question, Brett, when do you... When do you wake up? What's the waking up moment for you? Are you asking Brett? I want to hear Well, Brett. no, like, yeah, or, or you. I'm just, you know, he asked too, like, when do you, what do you think the catalyst was for seeing this story in a new way? Like, wow, this was the moment that changed me. So a couple things come to mind. The first is our current our current here and now style of relating and relational issues, right? So for most of my 20s, um, probably all of high school and most of my 20s, I had relational problems, mm -hmm. whether it would be with uh, a boyfriend or friendships where I really was guarded, mm -hmm. that I was not going to let anyone affect me. But truth be told, it was deeply affecting me. But I found myself at 16 with an incredibly abusive, very abusive boyfriend mm. that I just kept trying harder. I'm like, oh, this feels like home. And even mm. though it was so psychologically damaging to me, um, I just, it felt like home and I kept trying. I'm going to work harder. I'll just do better. Um, and so what happens is that we then have patterns of, of not being able to give or receive love or in a way that brings um, fulfillment and kindness and true intimacy. It's more these patterns of that hurt us. For other people, it's a pattern of fear and anxiety. Mm. So I'm not I'm not prone to that because I think of my pattern. It's more like like you, Brett, to be like you're not going to affect me. I'm not going to let you into my heart, to my innocence, to my goodness. I'm just going to be tough. So mm. I became a tough girl. Um, and so I think to answer your question, it's like, how is your life now? Is it working? Yeah. Mm. Or is there pain? 
Is there relational pain? Is there self-contempt? Is there shame? Is there anger that's driving you that you can't seem to just snap out of? Yeah. It has a direct link to your story. And I think as I look back at my own life and I look at your story and I look at the myriad of stories that come through our doors every single day, I think of the faithfulness of God to constantly give us an invitation to see ourselves. It is always before us. Our stories are always before us. The invitation is there. God is not absent in in inviting you to deeper joy, to deeper goodness. And I think of the first step of, of the 12 steps. We admitted we were powerless and that our lives had become unmanageable. I mean, like, hello, like what a step one, you know, it's like, um, has my present life, is my present life unmanageable? You know, have I become powerless over addiction over, you know, is addiction ruling me, whether it's addictive behaviors, addictive dependencies, doesn't just mean alcohol or drugs, but you know, am I, am I just powerless over this? Do I need help? Am I unmanageable? And that is a catalyst and an invitation to really see our lives and our stories differently. You say invitation. I keep thinking, gosh, I'm thinking so much right now. My goodness, a lot. Lori, <laughs> dead gummit, why do you do that? Um, but no, I, I think of, of to, not to quote Roar all this whole thing, but you know, he says, um, you have to leave the garden. Yeah. You have to leave the garden and you have to be wounded. And mm-hmm. None of us like to do that. We want to stay in the garden, but Jesus isn't in the garden. Mm. He's, he's not. Mm. And so, um, yeah, it's almost like we have to go through the fire of acknowledging the hell we've been through or the wounds that we have and accept them and then move, move, move forward in that. And nobody likes to do that. At least I don't. Well, no, it's painful. Because well, and it also it also potentially outs people that you love really deeply. Like, you know, I could sit here and go, well, do you think your dad was sitting there thinking, I'm going to abuse my daughter right now? It could be the fact, maybe he had one too many drinks, or it could be that he was just really annoyed and had a bad day, or he's separated and he's frustrated, and it was just that moment, not really even realizing the impact he was going to put on you for years to come. And so it's almost like we want to protect our loved ones and go, you know, when my dad told me, hey, stop being silly, he wasn't trying to be an asshole. He was doing the best he could, but yet I vowed I'll never say to my kids, hey, quit being silly, because I didn't like the way that made me feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think you bring up a good point just about those primary relationships of attachment and those primary formational, um, that language that is used, um, we can't forget that, yes, while we, while we all know, hey, we live in a broken world, all of us have to leave the garden eventually, we still have the primary responsibility as parents to know ourselves so that we can care for our children in the very best way. doesn't mean we're not going to hurt them and harm them. But if we don't know ourselves, we're walking blind in a minefield. That's like, there's just going to be carnage everywhere. And we're not going to be able to repair it because 
we're going to be wounded too. You know, well, and going like, going back to what you said at the very beginning, Lori. You know, for for all the parents who might be feeling, oh crap, I've done this to my kids, or you know, I've totally inflated. I didn't even mean to. There is that opportunity for repair. Yes, talk to us about that, Lori. Um, well, first, I want to say even what you were just saying, Emily. Dan Allender says we cannot take someone further than we're willing to go ourselves. Yeah. So, as parents, if we don't take our own story seriously and really sit with our invitations. And and those invitations are painful. They're not like, oh, Jesus is inviting you to this beautiful place. Mm -hmm. No, they suck, they're triggers, right? It's a place in us that taps into some unprocessed pain. So if we're not willing to sit with our pain from our own story, from our own harm, then we're not going to be able or willing to sit with our children's harm or the way that they've experienced pain. So I just want to say that. So take your story seriously because it's going to make you a better parent. Totally. A better friend, a better spouse. And so I just wanted to say that it seems important. So talk to us about this repair process. If, if we either have participated in verbally abusing or stonewalling, minimizing, if we do that, if we're kind of, this is our invitation to kind of wake up and go take inventory, a ruthless and searching moral inventory, like the steps say of ourselves. And we go, gosh, I do that. Like, how am I going to repair this with my child if I've done it? Or let's say you've been wounded as a child um, and you're learning how to make repair now in your own life, um, what are some steps that we can we can do? What's the hope there? So I want to talk about repair in two senses. One is to repair with yourself. I want to start there first, because until we repair with ourselves, we are not going to have the capacity or the space to repair with someone else. So what I mean by repair with ourselves, it's and this is deep inner work. This is not for the faint of heart. Um, This is the journey, right, that Richard Rohr talks about, like getting out of Eden and having to kind of contend with pain. But repairing with yourself means so like, so in that case where I agreed that like that was too much, it was disgusting. It was, there's something inherently flawed about me. Well, to repair with myself means to break that agreement, to break Mm -hmm. those agreements and to return to the truth that I am beautifully and wonderfully and like stunningly made because when I agree that I'm too much, that I'm like that, I am out of alignment with the spirit, with the truth. I'm out of integrity. Mm. So I need to repair with myself. I need to break that agreement, but I can't do that until I really get back in the landscape of that story Mm. because that those agreements happened on the ground in particularity. And so to go back and to to weep, to let that little girl weep and to be comforted by me, Mm. that's repairing with myself. Yes, it is. And it's bringing self-compassion and kindness and the love of a good, good, perfect parent Mm. that I didn't have in that moment. And ways that you, I, I know this, I'm like seeing this, I, I, I'm, I'm in it. I'm like with you all the way. But I know some of my pragmatic, not quite as mystic or contemplative folks listening are going to go, yeah, but how do I do that? Like, 
how do I bring compassion and grieve over my story? Like how? Yeah. And I wish I can give you the A plus B equals C. (laughs) I know, I know. It's a little more nuanced than that, but really a simple way is just like compassionate inquiry. Mm. Like sometimes I'll speak with my clients about that. Well, imagine if that was another little girl, like what, what would you say to her? how would you respond? Like, because it's hard to get outside of our own agreement towards ourselves, right? If I agreed I'm disgusting, it's going to be hard to offer love and kindness when I'm feeling disgusting, but it's, it's taking, it's becoming the observer, like taking the step back from the one that suffered the hurt to really like stand in the truth and be like, no, this is the truth. You did not deserve that. Mm. You were just a little girl and Mm. you deserve more love more compassion, more grace, and I'm going to be the one to give it to you. Mm. So it's, it's a practice yeah, and it's not easy. Yeah. One of the beautiful tools that I think are so readily available to us, um, through podcast and through apps, even now on our phone, um, what you're talking about while, while some of us may be wired toward introspection and can do this compassionate inquiry with a journal and a pen and sitting out in nature, that may be how some of us are really wired. Um, but even those people need outside guides. Those, even those who are attuned to contempl- contemplation, um, we still need community. We, we need the, the sages who can look at the data of our stories and tell us what's missing. And I look at my own life. I mean, you've, you were a witness for me in that moment three years ago to see the gap, to see what I wasn't getting, to see what I wasn't saying. I didn't even know what I was talking about. And so many, I had totally framed my story in one fashion. And so I think um, quality therapy, I think the Allender Center story work, the work that so that that you and Jean are doing with your story circles and your workshops, I mean, there are a myriad and we will list those on the website for ways to really repair with self. So that's the first step. What is, what is the second part of repair? How do we repair? Once we've done kind of more of this self-work, what do we do to repair with others? Okay. So, and thank you for bringing up that point because we are not meant to do this alone. We do need other people to read our faces, to see our stories um, in a way that we can't see them because we were in them. And so we are all about, I mean, our organization was founded to cultivate these spaces where we can be seen and known and spoken truth over Mm -hmm. because we can do that on behalf of one another. Mm -hmm. And, and that's really um, the beginning point to then be able to offer it to yourself. So it's a both and we we need community and we do need to be able to learn how to do it for ourselves. That's the self-healing journey. Mm-hmm. And with God's help, right? We're not meant to do this alone ever. So yeah. even when we're doing it alone, we can bring in the power of God, the mm-hmm. power of the spirit, because that's mm-hmm. that's our birthright. Mm-hmm. So that's the first step. So once we're doing that for ourselves and really getting a sense of our own story and, and where we've been harmed and then our style of relating that comes out of that harm, um, now we're going to have more space for another person. 
So, and, and I've been doing this work for a very long time and it's still very hard when my mm. uh, teenage daughter comes to me and tells me how I failed her, like, <laughs> I, right. My body immediately responds. I feel the anger and the heat rising, like really? And you know what I want to say is, don't you know what I've done for you, kid? Right? I want to get defensive. So I have to be able to regulate myself. So I think that's one of the first steps in being able to repair. You have to listen to your body. And when that fight, flight, freeze, or appease comes in, you have to be able to breathe and notice and calm your body, regulate yourself in a way that then I can can kind of forget myself so mm. I can hold space for her experience, for her emotions. That's what repair really is. So, because if I make it about me, then it's not true repair. Mm. Repair means I'm going to hold the space for your pain and I'm going to apologize for how I have um, contributed to that pain. Mm. That's true repair. But we can't do that if we're if we had those, you know, hormones and cortisol and adrenaline rushing through our body, because that puts us in fight, flight, freeze, defensiveness, and all the ways that it just actually escalates the problem instead of um, finding true repair. Mm. So good. So good. Brett, do you have more questions as we just continue to wrap up? I, I have see just enjoyed face. listening to this. I'm like, just. So much, so much to remember, say. So yeah, what what are you even saying right now? Remember when I told you we're going to do a series on abuse? I was like, I have this great podcast series on abuse, and we're going to talk about all the. And you're like, yes, you're like, here we go. But it truly is. I think as we listen to this content, I mean, it just it does hit us. I mean, because we've all been wounded. Well, yeah, and we've, all, we've all wounded other people. We we've, yeah. we've done the harm. We've both been the offender and. The victim, you know, of harm. Well, and so many of us have, you know, spent 40 some odd years of our lives minimizing or saying, oh, I don't need that. You know, and then you start into it and it's like, oh God, I'm really messed up. <laughs> and I do want to just say that there, there's um, a scripture and I'm not one to like throw scripture around a lot because I think sometimes that's the way we avoid our pain and our mm. wounding the band-aid of scripture on it but it's the kindness of god that leads to repentance mm -hmm. and, and so we can't change until we first truly receive kindness right of course wounded people wound people mm -hmm. and and it's the kindness true kindness that has us turn from that and it begins with ourselves. So when we can offer kindness for all the ways that we've done harm and have been harmed, right? It's it's both. It starts to lessen the shame and the self-contempt that actually causes our world to be at war. I mean, we're mm -hmm. a, a world at war right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, all you have to do is turn on the television or go onto Facebook and you can see how much abuse is still happening. Mm -hmm. And kindness and love is the answer. Mm. And that sounds like a really simple, easy thing, but it's not. It's probably the most complex thing you can do. Mm. But the more we can offer kindness to ourselves and our own story, the more we're changing the world. Well, then we mm. can't, we can't, I think the book says this, you can't love your neighbor until you love yourself. That's right. That's you can't right. be kind to someone until you're kind to yourself. That's right. 
So it all begins with self. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm so passionate about taking your stories seriously and your, your harm and your wounding seriously. Mm-hmm. It's not something we just snap out of. It's something that needs attention and kindness mm-hmm. and, and um, a lot of, of space. Mm-hmm. Um, I am so grateful for just the attention that you've helped to give to us and the attunement that you have given to story and to words and to the covert and overt ways that we use language to help or harm. Um, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'm just so, so grateful for your wisdom. And um, Laurie, tell our listeners where where can we find you? So if we um, want to. Yes, sure. <laughs> After listening to this, if you really want to. Comes with warning labels. <laughs> yeah, right? Come um, and feel the pain. Just gonna kick you in the throat and then hug you. That's your new t-shirt, Lori. That's your new that's your new branding guide. <laughs> Come feel the pain. But yeah, and I will say this. It's it's not for the faint of heart, but it is so worth it. It is so worth it. It's the inner journey, right? Mm. So my business partner, Gene, and I, we we founded an organization called So That. It's S-O-W-T-H-A-T. And we really cultivate, educate, and, and hold spaces, communities of care that you can come to heal, to be seen, to be known, to be loved in the way that you were meant to be. It It's it's really at the heartbeat of what we do. And so we work um, with groups, we work with organizations, we work one-on-one with people. um, And it really is using this methodology that we've been talking about. Like Mm -hmm. how do we bring true kindness and how do we go back in our stories to to really like to mine the goodness, to to find the essence that was covered in dirt and mud, that was Mm -hmm. abuse, that was verbal abuse physical abuse, all the types of abuse steal that from us. It mars us. Mm-hmm. And so, so there is a way there is. to return. Your circles yeah. are really powerful. Um, I've done your Enneagram coaching circle. And then um, one of my very best friends is going to be starting your story group circle. Um, she's really excited about that. And so you can find, I think it's so that on Instagram. So you can follow so that on Instagram. And then you guys have a website too. What's that website? It's, yeah, we're on Instagram and Facebook, and it's so that, S-O-W-T-H-A-T, and so the URL is just .com, so mm-hmm. that.com. And we hope you will, if you are interested in doing this work and receiving more care, maybe you've had something awakened just as you've listened to this about words that have, curses that have been spoken over your life. Maybe you've become aware of the beliefs and identities and agreements that you've made with those curses. And then the vows, the declarations of of how you've lived those curses out um, and created really destructive patterns um, where you've joined with with evil that isn't your goodness. It's not your birthright. It's not your calling. It's it's what was spoken over you. Um, there is a way to break that. And there is a way to step into your essence and your goodness that comes from God. And so that is here to help you do that. Um, so we are so grateful for you. And Give us your feedback, listeners, as you're listening to this. If you've got questions, um, if you've got comments, if you've got thoughts, we have loved your feedback, and it helps us determine what kind of content 
you desire moving forward. And can I just say thank you, Brett and Emily, for what you do in the world. It is so beautiful. And I just love your commitment. Um, yeah, to awaken hope. Thank you. Wow. We love you, Lori. Thank you for we being We love you, Lori. Guys, thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for joining the Jesus Said Love podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to awaken hope and empower change with us. We want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a review Yes, because your voice matters. It's how we get this message into the world. And lastly, be sure to follow Jesus Said Love on Instagram and Facebook for up-to-date info and visit the website at jesussaidlove.com for how you can join the JSL fam. Until next time. Share the love.